1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And today I'm talking to Jesse Rhodes, who is returning to the podcast uh, for the second time with his new book, Ballot Blocked, The Political Erosion of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Jesse's book is uh, published in 2017 by Stanford University Press. Jesse, welcome back. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, Heath. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing the book. Uh, uh, we're not going to be talking a lot about how the book looks, but the look, book looks amazing. It has this uh, great cover, uh, which our description won't do it justice. Um, but but as as way of introduction to you, maybe you could talk just a little bit about yourself, where you've gone from your first book to your second here. And, and maybe you just briefly describe how this book looks. Cause it's such, such a cool cover. Uh, so just introduce us a little bit again to yourself.
0: Well, I should start by talking about the cover, and, and I was very excited about it. The uh, uh, staff at Stanford University Press did a really outstanding job. So just to describe the, the cover, uh, it's a very dramatic cover. The uh, image is of a partially torn ballot, um, and most of the cover is actually empty black space. Um, with the ballot occupying the, a small part of the the top of the cover, um, and of course the ballot, uh, including uh, the the title of the book, as well as m- my name as uh, a candidate, of course, and so you know obviously a callback to the uh, content of the book and um, it's it's very dramatic and I think very powerful, given that the theme of the book is about the uh, gradual uh and very serious uh diminution of the scope of the voting rights act and uh the authority of the federal government to protect the voting rights
1: of vulnerable groups in american society yeah the the cover is is nearly and i think quite uh a nice hat tip to the spinal tap uh, album cover. Uh, if you've ever seen <laughs> that movie, uh, it, it's really close to that in in a way that I'm sure was unintentional, but um, but very funny at the same time. I hadn't
0: thought about that, but uh, th- that's a good point.
1: You can you can hang these together uh, at at some point. I forgot what the name of that that album. They fictitiously did, but it had a very similar cover for those uh, that have watched that movie. Uh, so let's talk about the book. Um, and, and also mention that you're, you're still at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and are now an associate professor of political science there. So let's, let's talk about the book. Um, there are these, uh, bookends that your book fits between, uh, that really make up what you're talking about. And those bookends are the original Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the more recent Supreme Court uh, decision, the, the Shelby decision. Uh, let's get to the Shelby decision later but but let's first perhaps you could outline the basics of the Voting rights act um the big components of it and maybe a little bit about the the politics of its passage in the 1960s
0: right so um, as you said that the the book uh, really and I think the the intention of the book was to um, fill the gap in the political history between the enactment of the Voting rights Act of 1965 and Um, the Shelby County decision of 2013 and and what's happened since. And um, just briefly before I I get to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I wanted to emphasize, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, that um, the the, the rationale for that is that while there's been an enormous amount of research on the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and how it came to be enacted, and there's an enormous amount of research on uh, the Shelby County decision and the consequences for contemporary voting rights enforcement There's a real gap in our understanding of that really critical intervening almost 50 year period. Um, And a lot of what has been discussed is this narrative of kind of bipartisan consensus in support of voting rights. And the book as a whole really seeks to uh, raise questions about that narrative of bipartisan consensus. Um, so I can talk a little bit about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so, um, the critical, uh, uh, purpose of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was to give the federal government the tools to be much more actively and, uh, 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 preemptively engaged in addressing, uh, Discriminatory actions that could interfere with the right of individuals to vote and with the right of individuals' votes to have equal weight in the political process. That before 1965, um, the tools that were available to the federal government were prob- primarily uh, uh, lawsuits, so efforts to enjoin discriminatory um, practices in elections. And uh, that was very clearly uh, an inadequate set of tools that um, throughout the South, uh, states and localities very aggressively worked through uh, both legal and extra-legal means to deny uh, the ballot to African-American citizens. And the federal government before 1965 you know, they would, they would get involved in lawsuits to try to prohibit uh, the, those illegal actions, right, which were clearly illegal under, uh, under the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. But the federal government was really engaged in kind of a process of whack-a-mole, um, that uh, localities would do things that were unconstitutional. Uh, the federal government would try to initiate suits when and where it could. Of course, given its limited resources, it could, it could only do what it could do. Um, but then those suits would take years. Uh, and elections would go by, people still wouldn't have access to the ballot. Um, And as a result, the federal government was always playing catch-up, always way behind. And as a result, um, throughout the South, uh, millions of people were denied access to the vote, unable to register to vote, even if they were successful in registering, unable to successfully cast a ballot. And so what the Voting Rights Act did was give federal government new tools to become more aggressive and more active on the front end. Um, and so it strengthened the the authority of the federal government to initiate lawsuits. But really what was critical was, um, what's known as section five of the voting rights act, um, which authorized the federal government to, uh, what's called pre clear, uh, Voting changes, changes in election rules, changes in registration rules, um, changes in uh, election systems, ultimately, that could affect, uh, adversely affect uh, the the uh, right of uh, African-Americans and other people of color to vote and to have their votes meaningfully counted in elections. And so until uh, 2013, when... Uh, the Shelby County decision effectively rendered Section Five inoperative. That really was the heart of the Act. Um, this authority to pre-clear proposed changes
1: in election rules. Now, written into the the law, the original law is a is a sunset clause that compels Congress to extend the VRA Voting Rights Act on occasion. Um, has this portion of the Act? been a contentious process for Congress, or has it generally been consensual uh, for its continuation? Well, that's right. So
0: the the structure of the Voting Rights Act um, was divided into um, so-called permanent provisions, um, primarily relating to the federal government's litigation authority and so-called temporary provisions, in particular Section 4, which established the uh, formula which identified jurisdictions with histories of discrimination in elections for preclearance coverage and section five, which established the preclearance process. And those sections did sunset periodically and Congress had to, uh, affirmatively reauthorize those provisions. And so, uh, that, that process occurred several times in 1970, 1975, 1982 and 2006. And, uh, at least with the final votes by overwhelming margins in both houses of Congress, uh, Congress reauthorized those provisions. And at the same time with each reauthorization, it further extended the scope of the statute, um, primarily by overturning adverse, uh, Supreme court statutory decisions, um, and by including, more groups under the coverage of the Voting Rights Act's uh, provisions. Um, so uh, uh, Hispanics and Latinos, uh, people who uh, English is not their first language, uh, and so forth.
1: So uh, given what you just described, you would describe this as a wide bipartisan consensus that the, uh, st- the thrust and, and structure of Voting Rights Act is, is the right uh, way to make policy. Uh, but at the same time, there is this other cross current, which is Republican opposition. Um, and, and much of what you do in the book is to try to reconcile the continued legislative support by Republicans for the various provisions of the Voting Rights Act, um, despite the fact that they appear to disagree with it on ideological and, and maybe even more important than ideological on political grounds. Um, so so. How how do you square that? If that's the central puzzle, what why does that puzzle exist? Why are they in conflict between their legislative strategy and and uh, their ideology and, and politics?
0: Right, and so to answer that question, I just want to first um, highlight a few things about the nature of Republican behavior, and then I can talk about the rationale for it. So, for, so first of all, on the legislative side, um, it's absolutely the case that when you look at final passage votes that there was broad bipartisan consensus on final passage um, for the reauthorization and extension of the provisions of the VRA. However, when you drill down a little bit and start to look at um, votes on amendments that would limit the scope of the Voting Rights Act or institute uh, new sunset provisions on uh, the section four and section five, or even other sections like the minority language uh, provisions, or that would strip uh, the minority language provisions from the act, you start to see partisan divisions on those pre-final passage votes, on those amendment votes, Republicans are increasingly, especially after 1975, more likely to support weakening provisions for the act and then once those uh, pro- proposals, those amendments are, are not adopted, that Republicans come around and support on the final passage vote. Um, and so there's a dynamic in which many Republicans vote for weakening amendments, but then once those amendments fail, they vote for final passage. And so the, the legislative process itself is more contentious and more divided than the final passage votes indicate. Um, but then I think also, as you were suggesting, Heath, that when you look at other aspects of the political process, if you look at, uh, uh, judicial nominations and appointments to the Supreme Court, if you look at, uh, administration of the, uh, enforcement of the Voting Rights Act under Republican presidents, that you see, uh, decisions that are much less enthusiastic, uh, about vigorous federal enforcement of minority voting rights that very consistently from the presidency of Richard Nixon through the presidency of George W. Bush, Republican presidents nominated uh, jurists who everyone expected would have a narrow view of uh, voting rights cases when they were on the court. And then subsequently, in fact, consistently delivered uh, narrow, or pardon me, uh, votes against voting rights plaintiffs, uh, votes in support of a narrow interpretation of the act. And at the same time, um, Republican presidents uh, adopted uh, administrative strategies that tended to reduce the scope of federal enforcement. So they consistently uh, promoted to positions of power within the civil rights division of the Department of Justice. Individuals who were not sympathetic to a strong interpretation of the Voting Rights Act, those individuals um, very consistently uh, worked hard to uh, centralize authority within their own persons, within their offices, to exercise greater control over career staff within the uh, Civil Rights Division, right? So, because career staff tended to be enthusiastic about strong voting rights enforcement. Um, And with these types of behaviors, you did see important changes in the vigorousness of federal enforcement during Republican administrations. You saw um, important declines in the frequency of objections to state and local uh, election law changes. You saw declines in the number of suits that were supported by the administrations um, against jurisdictions with potentially discriminating voting arrangements and so forth. And so um, very consistently from the late 1960s through uh, George W. Bush administration, uh, the conclusion in 2008, Republicans were using these non-legislative strategies to limit the scope of enforcement.
1: And part of the burden on you in this book is to do more than simply sort of describe what's happened but also to show some level of, of intent and and to the why question so you know why why do it this way and and the you know one answer is well it's just more um, it's just the better way to do it um, but but your answer is a little bit different I wonder if you can talk uh, just a little bit about about that why question what you've discovered because you've done incredible detailed historical archival research um, that gets to motivation and gets to intent um, without describing all of the intent. I wonder if there are any uh, examples uh, that stick out to you in the book that, that get to the the explanation for why this has been the strategy over this time period.
0: Well, the essential uh, essentially the explanation for this behavior is political. Um, that on the one hand, Republicans had a lot of ideological and political reasons to be unenthusiastic about a vigorous federal presence in enforcing minority voting rights. Um, Some Republicans and their constituents uh, had racially conservative attitudes. They were not uh, enthusiastic or focused on expanding the, the voting rights of citizens of color. Um, other Republicans, uh, you know, they might have in the abstract, uh, believed that voting rights were important, but they were more concerned about the specter of, uh, big or overweening government. Um, still other Republicans had constituents who were anxious about the practical political consequences of expanded, uh, minority political participation in politics. Um, Some Republicans were primarily focused on electoral strategies, and their big concern was about increasing Republican uh, political involvement uh, and support in uh, the formerly uh, solidly Democratic South. And so there are a lot of uh, factors that made Republican politicians disinclined to support vigorous federal enforcement of minority voting rights. No. But, but on the go other ahead. hand, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Heath. No, 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 um, but go ahead. I, But on the other hand, uh, there was an important electoral imperative that made Republicans nervous about being too aggressive in uh, their efforts to limit the scope of federal enforcement. And that was the perception, and I think the correct perception, that overly aggressive efforts to limit the scope of minority voting rights would be opposed not only by voters of color, but also by moderate whites. That the Voting Rights Act is um, what people call a super statute. It has a kind of quasi-constitutional status. It's venerated. It's viewed as kind of one of the key uh, uh, pillars of contemporary American politics and being perceived as attacking that it uh, Republicans feared would be perceived as tantamount to attacking uh, the Constitution and the idea of civil rights itself. And so Republicans were very anxious about how attacking the Voting Rights Act would affect public perceptions of the party. And so what we see is a strategy in which in these very high-profile, transparent politics, uh, uh, legislative politics over uh, the Voting Rights Act, Republicans acquiesce to make uh, uh, it appear that they are supportive of voting rights and to protect their reputation. But in these less transparent, more behind-the-scenes venues of administrative politics uh, and judicial appointments, they pursued the objectives that Accorded with their core ideological now, and, and political commitments
1: change, um, and and change after the most recent um, in in during the Bush administration, the most most recent uh, reup of of many of the provisions of the law. Um, what gets us from that time period uh, of the mid aughts up through the Shelby decision, and and even sort of more more uh, uh, up through today. Uh, what, what's changed in the politics of the Voting rights act um, that that has uh that sort of leads us inevitably to the Shelby decision um and and to a repositioning of of the conversation about uh electoral rights and voting rights. Um, maybe you could just sort of uh we can end our conversation talking about the more uh, contemporary time period?
0: Well, I think that um through two thousand and six uh not much had changed, so uh you saw republicans a very conservative republican party in congress a very conservative republican president george w bush um, ultimately come out and overwhelmingly support reauthorization of the voting rights act again for 25 years until um 2031 um and uh, at the same time you saw uh, uh george w bush uh uh continue on the path of his republican forebears that he really aggressively and some and some would claim even illegally took steps to reduce the scope of federal enforcement, and he appointed very conservative judges to the Supreme Court. Um, what happened with Shelby County was that it really changed um the playing field and the uh who bore the standard of um the burden of promoting voting rights and proposing voting rights proposals so what really critically happened with Shelby County was that it judicially cleared the deck of um, uh, the the preclearance process by striking down the coverage formula. It rendered uh, the uh, preclearance process inoperative and Republicans have been trying uh, to weaken preclearance by variety means for a long time. um, But they knew that they couldn't do it too aggressively. Well, with Shelby County, the Supreme Court handed them a gift. It, it, did, it did the dirty deed for them, so to speak. And so now with the preclearance process inoperative, um, Republicans no longer bear the, bore the burden of trying to explain why the voting rights should be limited. Instead, Democrats were in the position of having to justify um, big changes to the Voting Rights Act as it existed. And so Shelby County kind of flipped the burden from Republicans to Democrats, and put Republicans in this position, where instead of having to justify their uh, novel proposals, they could instead uh, exploit the the characteristic tendency of Congress to to do nothing, uh, and and put the burden of proof on Democrats to justify these changes. And so that's really where we are today. That that uh, since since Shelby County Democrats tried on numerous occasions to try to resurrect. Uh the pre clearance process Republicans have said no, it's not necessary um and meanwhile, um at the state and local levels, we've seen these big fights over voter i d over um other restrictive voting rules and again, because the federal government doesn't have the means to preemptively review these changes, um, their' uh, uh, opponents of these changes, so civil rights activists, Democrats, and so forth, have to after the changes are enacted, uh, go through the litigation process to challenge them them in court. And so we're kind of ironically, in some ways, back to where we were before 1965.
1: Uh, an amazing way to end this conversation and, and also also the, the book. Uh, the This topic of, of voting rights, the actual Voting Rights Act, and also the way in which it's being played out at the state and local level is so in the news Uh, right now uh, that your book, uh, Ballot Blocked, The Political Erosion of the Voting Rights Act, published in 2017 by Stanford University Press, is a must read. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Heath, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure.